Hello. Hey, John. Oh, hi there, Dan. Hey. <laughs> well, how are you? Uh, geez. Well, golly, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing all right. I, I'm, I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I was uh, more than a little intrigued by what was going on with you on stage with a whole bunch of other uh, musicians and performers and some kind of a tribute thing, and I'd love to hear about that. Um, but uh, otherwise, what's up with you? How are you? What's going on? Oh, you know, Dan, I'm just fine. I'm uh, that that event you're talking about was a giant uh, show that we recently did with um with a, a large cast of of Seattle uh, famous musicians, where we played the songs of Neil Young. And it was uh, it was a thing that I agreed to do a long time ago, as I do sometimes agree to do things. Yeah. And then as it got closer and closer, I, I regretted having uh, agreed to do it and, <laughs> and wanted uh, uh, nothing uh, nothing more than to not have to do it. Right. And uh, and then the night arrived and I went and did the show and it was great. Uh, super fun. And... Um, what and, what was the... I, I feel that I do the same thing. I think this must be a, just a human thing. But you kind you commit to something, and then later on you're like, oh, "What did I sign up to do that thing for?" And then you dread it, mm-hmm. and then it turns out to be great, and you're glad that you did it, and you realize that it was this wonderful thing that you would have been a fool to have not done, right? Correct. So what what was this? How did it come about? And what can you share? Oh well, um, Seattle is has a very close knit mu- music community, and. and over time, over the years, the music community has been very close knit at times. It's become sort of diffuse and, and, uh, and factionalized at other times. Then it, then it gets really close knit again, back and forth, back and forth. It's happened, you know, since the 1970s, uh, many different times. And I've lived through a couple of different versions of it. Times when it felt really close, times when it felt like there were five music scenes that all hated each other, times that it felt like there was no music community anymore and it was just, and everybody just had gone their own separate ways. Now I'm living in a world where the the contemporary music scene uh, in Seattle is a is kind of a mystery to certainly to to my generation, but also I think to the music press mm-hmm. and to the music scene itself. Like there used to be, and some of this, of course, pre pre internet, there was, there was a limited, there were just a limited number of sources where you could get information about what was happening in Seattle and the band. There were only so many clubs and cafes, and, um, you know, now there you could conceivably be a musician in Seattle that had a successful career. And no one else had ever heard of you or ever met you because it was all happening on your computer. Right. <laughs> but, um, but what we have right now is a community of musicians that are my age or a little older or a little younger who all have known each other for a couple of decades now. And quite a few of us have are accomplished enough that, uh, you know, that we have some amount of draw, but we're old enough now that we have, that we have access to things and we have, you right. know, we're, we have, we have a certain amount of power. 
And there are some younger musicians that ha- that have made it into that community because they've either been anointed because they play music that we understand. Right. Or they've had success and everybody understands success. And that's happened several times over the years too. I mean, 10 years ago, there was a new group of musicians on the scene that were 20 years old um, that made it into that collective consciousness, you know, the head and the heart or whatever bands that were young because they were playing music that everybody understood right now. I think if you were, if you were a band of 21 year olds in Seattle that, um, were trying to join this, uh, trying to find support in that preexisting music scene, you'd have a hard time. And partly it is that Nobody knows what shows to go to anymore. Nobody, there's not, there's not a kind of farm system like there used to be where you're a young band. So you play a Tuesday night at this club and then you graduate to the Tuesday night at that club. And mm-hmm. then you are playing Thursday night at that club. Like that system doesn't work like it used to. And so when people, you know, when people come up to me or I go up to people and say like, who are you listening to these days? It's kind of a big shrug now. I don't know. I'm not sure. I went to see a show the other day and one of the bands was good, but I don't remember any of their names because their names were weird. You know, they were, they were, they were called like morgue colon and the exemplifier 126. (laughs) And it's like morgue and the exemplifier 120. I don't know. Is that a band or what is that? Is that a computer program? So anyway, this is an event. Um, there's a, there have been several Seattle musicians like to do good works. We rec- we recognize as a community that we, that we want to give back and that we owe. And so we've, we love doing benefit shows and, and there is a little bit of a, there's a, there's been a tendency over the years to get benefit show exhaustion like in the nineties and, and the, and the two thousands, anytime somebody wanted to raise any money for really anything, like my cat needs to get vaccinated. Let's put on a benefit show. There were so many benefit shows uh, so much so that a lot of bands just were like, we're not doing it anymore. Death Cab for cutie. You hardly ever see them play a benefit unless they're doing it for a cause that belongs to them. I got benefit burnout at a certain point, because if you say yes, uh, you'll just keep getting asked. And for a band in the middle, like you only get a certain number of plays a year. You can't just play in Seattle every weekend. Um, you have to, you have to, you have to parcel those shows out if you want those shows to be, to be regarded as a big deal. Right. Um, even if Guns N' Roses played every weekend, mm-hmm. eventually, after two years, nobody would go to the shows anymore. It's like, yeah, yeah I've been, I saw them 15 times. And so if if every time you play a show in Seattle, it's, it's a benefit, you never make any money because you're basically you're giving all your money away. But nowadays, my music community, benefit shows are a great way for us to get together. And we also are now trending to... A lot of the people that were musicians in my time have become people on the boards of directors of nonprofits. Most of the musicians that I know did not go in 
did not become rich at Amazon. Right. They stayed in the, they stayed in the community and they started working with, with affordability issues. They started working with, working in local politics. I mean, that's the trend. Um, it certainly was the trend for me. Yeah. So there's a group called smash, which is the Seattle musicians. It's, it stands for Seattle musicians access to sustainable healthcare. And it's a recognition. There's a, there's a group called music cares that happens under the auspices of the Grammys that saw that a lot of musicians just don't have, they, they, they don't have dentists. They don't have access to the doctor because there's no benefits associated with being an artist. You don't get insurance. And so th- what the Grammys recognized was there are all these, there are all these like musicians, blues musicians, for instance, that everybody loves and that are hugely influential. But when you really look at their finances, they don't have any money. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they signed bad record deals or whatever. They're just, they're poor. And they were, and they had medical problems and they weren't being addressed. And so, so music cares came out as a way of where, you know, the recording Academy could kind of spread some money around, um, to help musicians in need. And smash is an, is, is a local effort. And it's part of that same recognition. Like I'm 51 and in the last five years, I've lost, you know, a handful of friends to drug overdoses and suicides and unaddressed medical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, w- w- our music community lost a friend uh, the other day as a result, uh, and a guy that had played a a big role that he wasn't a musician. He was on the, he was a, a, on the, um, venue side, you know, he was like a longtime stage manager and, and roadie and a curmudgeonly character. And he died of complications of hepatitis that he got from being a junkie and Mm. didn't have any money. So he never really fully addressed the hepatitis and never really, you know, just was sort of hand to mouth in it and, um, died at a pretty young age. So Smash is a pretty new organization. It's run by um, people that we all know. Like the president of Smash is Ian Moore, who you might have a vague recollection of. Maybe not. Ian Moore was one of the first ever, he's from Austin, and was one of the first like uh, boy genius guitar players in the 1980s. Right. Like one of the first ones that you ever heard of referred to as like this 16 year old kid is the next Stevie Ray Vaughan. Right. Right. And he was in guitar player magazine in the mid eighties, um, as a, or late eighties, I guess, as like this, this kid phenomenon. And after a while he got bored or bummed with being the next Stevie Ray Vaughan. Right. And, you know, and I, he was the young guy that like went out on tour with the stones oh, type nice. of thing because they love that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. 
here he is, it's the Immole, a new guitar phenomenon, and he could come out and play <laughs> song with him or whatever. All right. And he was like, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, I want to, I want to make, you know, my own songs. I want to make like my own music. And so he moved to Seattle years ago and started making sort of trippy songwriting albums. And, um, and he's really been embraced up here. Everybody loves him. He's a wonderful guy. And so he, he lives on Vashon Island, but so this is, you know, smash is like an organization that he kind of helms. Well, all we know how to do is raise money through having benefit shows and, and going out and getting grants from people that support organizations like this. Um, and so this year, last year or the last smash benefit, I think it might've been in the year before last, um, was the music of my, of mother love bone. Okay. Yeah. I know them. And, um, and like what was crazy about that about that show was that one of the featured art, artists at the show was a guy named Sean Smith who was a great Seattle musician that was in Brad and and uh these bands that were grunge era bands featuring the guys from Pearl jam or whatever, but, 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 um, but they never, they never became like massive, massive bands. Yeah. Mother, my mother love bone, same, same thing. Anyway, Sean Smith was one of the guys from that old scene that played at this smash benefit, singing the songs of mother love bone. And then Sean Smith died, um, this year, early this year. Again, sort of, I mean, and he was like in his early fifties, uh, and died of like a uh, high blood pressure or, mm. you know, it's just out of his heart, not working. And, and again, sort of like, uh, lack of medical care, you know, or, or lack of medical awareness because we just don't, I just don't think of ourselves that way. We don't, you know, musicians don't go to the doctor regularly. So this year, all the same people were, we all were together doing this show. And it was There's like, nothing special about a musician that would make them more prone to get sick and die at an early age necessarily. Right. Are you, are you saying that oh, there's for sure? What, what is What, what causes it? They well, is there just sort of goes along with the hard rocking party lifestyle, drug use type yeah. thing. Drugs, yeah. drugs and alcohol, late night, uh, you know, no sleep, bad food. Um, the whole life around being a musician and an entertainer mm -hmm. is antithetical to like a healthy eating, lifestyle. Right? Yeah. Eating three <laughs> square meals a day on a, at the same time every day, waking up in the morning, getting a, getting exercise, you know, like all the things that you, that healthy lifestyles seem to be built around, which is routine, um, small, small portions of healthy food eaten at regular intervals, right? Drink lots of water. Don't smoke or do drugs or drink or have risky sex or, um, stay up all night, you know, like they're, 
Just the, like the, a normal the, square life. Yeah. And even a square musician, even one, I mean, I didn't, throughout my whole career, I didn't do drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I smoked cigarettes and drank coffee and stayed up all night and lived extremely risky, uh, risky behaviors in every other respect, mm-hmm. including uh, untreated bipolar disorder, yeah. which I think a lot of, uh, a lot of musicians also have untreated mental, um, illnesses that they just don't, that they think it's part of their creative life to feel that way. Mm-hmm. It's very different to have a, to have a depression intrude upon your life when you're trying to, you know, get an honest day's work done as opposed to the way depression threads its way into your work as a poet, because as a poet, you are exploring those themes and exploiting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's deep in your work. Whereas depression as it affected a biologist would be, would be a, it would be a separate experience from the work of, from the pure work of doing the biology. Right. Whereas you can't separate depression from the work of writing feelings poems. Right. We would like to say thank you very much to Brooke Lennon. Yeah, you know, making your own beautiful is the ultimate form of self-care. That's what they say, but I think it might be true. And, you know, you spend a third of your life in your sheets at home. So you want a beautiful home and you also want it to be comfortable. You want it to be insanely comfortable. And this holiday season, it's time to gift yourself something, but also the people that you love, something that'll make their life a little bit more comfortable, like bedding or loungewear or towels, that kind of thing. Lucky for you, Brooklyn is having their biggest sale yet this Black Friday through Cyber Monday. It's very timely advertisement here on Roadwork. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to brooklinen.com, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. And, uh, and, and, and do what I did. Go and, and shop around and look at all the amazing like sheets and towels and comforters and things that they have that are just so awesome. And like I have these sheets. I've told this story before, but it's true. Once you get used to these sheets, you don't want to use any other ones. This is all we have on our bed now. We have one set. I wash it every week. I put it back on. And it's like, I, I tried another set of sheets and it, I'm sorry. It just wasn't as good. You'll notice the difference. And this is the thing. I want you to go and try these sheets because it will make a difference for you. Brooklinen.com. And here's the deal. This is the only way to get access to their biggest event and free shipping. That's how confident they are that you're going to like this stuff. And this Black Friday, this is the biggest sale that they've ever had Black Friday through Cyber Monday. Go to brooklinen.com, check out the awesome deals that are going on. And I just want to stay. If for some reason you have not heard this show by the time that Black Friday is ended and Cyber Monday is ended, fear not. You can still use the promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen.com for 10% off and free shipping anytime. So you'll still get a little something, but the best deal going on. You got to get there before December 3rd because that's when this stuff ends. So brooklinen.com, go there before December 3rd. And if you fail to do that, it's okay. Use the promo code ROADWORK and get 10% off and free shipping.
So thanks very much to Brooklinen for making this show possible. Anyway, this was this smash benefit was put together by dudes from our our world, our universe. Mm-hmm. Um and they got all the people from our world, Carrie Ockery from from uh Hammerbox and Chris Ballou from the Presidents of the USA and Shelby Earl and um the guys from Soundgarden and Dave Bazan and Ian Moore and uh, Leroy Bell, like a, a pretty diverse group of people and mm-hmm. a couple of young artists, uh, like a young band called the Naked Giants, uh, a gal named Shana from a young group called Bear Axe, uh, just to kind of round it out. Like, no, we have old, we have young people here too. Not just old people. Um, Kevin from the Moon Doggies, <laughs> who's great, who I would consider a young artist, although he's like 34 now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, uh, and everybody takes, oh, and then the, then the backing band is this cr- tremendous band, Tim Julio, uh, who's a great guitar player. There's a couple of the people from down pilot, Mike Musburger from the posies playing drums. Um, and it's just an excuse really for all of us to get together and play some songs that are fairly uncomplicated. And we all get to just. You all have the response. Every every person has the responsibility to hold down a couple of tunes, but you don't have to hold up a whole show. Right. That's lovely. And and we got Dave Matthews. And Dave Matthews is a very interesting. He's in, in, kind of like Ian Moore. He moved to Seattle years ago. Mm-hmm. But Dave Matthews moved to Seattle because his wife wanted to go to Bastyr Naturopathy College. And because Dave could live anywhere, he was like, all right, let's move to Seattle so you can go to this, you know, kind of famous naturopathic college. And they bought a very modest bungalow in a very modest neighborhood, Mm -hmm. Wallingford, and they just lived there uh, like normals, except Dave Matthews is worth $300 million. Like he's a massive rock star, uh, but he's an unpretentious rock star. And his wife wanted to go to this school and I guess they, and they have kids and they raised them and they lived in this neighborhood. But Dave had never been embraced by the Seattle music community because he didn't come up here. And we were, and he moved here after he was already a really big deal and we didn't know him and we were kind of in awe of him in the sense that he's like, well, and had that Seattle thing of like, why did you move here? Uh, uh, there's a, that, the Seattle feeling of like, what do you want exactly? <laughs> like, why did you come here? What do you want from us? And he never wanted anything, which was cool. He didn't try to be part of the scene. He mm. just was living his life. Well, so somebody uh, in our in our community um, went to yoga with his wife, maybe with him. I think with him, and and was. Um, 
putting together this, uh, this smash benefit and said, you know, Hey, why don't you come, uh, why don't you come do the, do the smash benefit with us? Mm-hmm. And he said, sure. And no one expected it. No one expected it. Mm-hmm. Um, like they didn't expect him to do it or they were surprised when he showed up. Well, so the, so the bass player of the, of the backing band is a woman by the name of Rebecca Young, who is just like, uh, she's just so great. She's extreme. And she's also kind of a transplant to here, but she's just a extremely, she's a great bass player and a very chill person, like a wonderful presence when she's around. You're just, she's one of those musicians where you're just like, Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad you're playing the bass. I'm just glad you're in the room. And she's very like self-effacing, low affect, right? She's approachable. She walk up to anybody. She makes a she makes the room feel good. And I think she took yoga with Dave Matthews. Maybe taught yoga. I'm not even sure what, what the connection was, <laughs> but she just rolled up on him and was like, "I'm playing this benefit show. You should play." And he was like, "And I'm sure he feels the same way about her that we all do," which was like, "Sure. I mean, you." I don't feel like Rebecca would steal, steer me wrong, right? If she was like, hey, I need you to drive me to Spokane, I would go, sure, well, when do we leave? And so all of a sudden he was available in a way that if we'd try, if, you know, if the, if the producers of the show, Ben London and Mike Musburger, had said, let's get Dave on the show, they would have had to have called, they would have had to have their somebody call somebody's somebody. Mm-hmm. And that never would have worked. Dave, uh, Dave's manager would have said no a long time before it ever got to him. But as it was, Rebecca was like, oh yeah, I've got his number. And also, so all of a sudden he's there and he could have played on a hundred of these up until now. It just never, it just never happened. And all of a sudden he's, he's there, right? Like, um, and I don't think anybody in the on the stage, just knowing the music scene like I do, I don't mm-hmm. think there's anybody up there that's like, oh my God, I'm a massive fan of that style of mm-hmm. music in, exactly. But we all know him. We've all heard stories about what a nice guy he is. And he's... He's a, uh, he's a working musician. Ultimately, fundamentally, we're all the same. The fact that he is up there in the ranks, like he has as much money as Elton John. Wow. And has sold millions of albums, but he's basically my age and has been playing music in a very different way but playing music through all of the same ebbs and flows that I have, or that any of those people on the stage have, right. then Ian, you know, Ian Moore is my age. Ian Moore, Dave Matthews and I, the three of us could have all been roommates in college. Mm-hmm. And so there's so, we have so much more in common than we do, than we have not in common. Um, 
that the fact that the that our musical styles diverge at a certain point is that none of that matters when you're standing around backstage at a venue and everybody and, and somebody makes an SM57 joke and everybody laughs it's like right we've all we all have a, so much experience with SM57s <laughs> that you can make a joke about it and in a in a small group of people that joke will really land right and and in fact it's a joke where where a sit, something's going on, something happens, and so, all somebody has to do is point and go, "Huh, it's a 57," and it's and everybody laughs. And Dave Matthews is going to get that, and so is Ian Moore, and so am I, and no one else would. Right. That isn't. And it's it's like a it's like a joke that a carpenter would make about a certain kind of of nail gun or whatever. You know, I'm they're sure there are people in the world that would that can make a hex driver joke and, and it'll crack up a room full of dudes. Um, anyway, so standing there and so, so, so we're all backstage and all of a sudden here's the, here's this guy and he's not, he's, he's not pretentious. Uh, he doesn't walk around shaking hands, you know, he's just kind of standing there. And, um, and over the course of the night, he really ingratiates himself with everybody. Like he's a team player. Yeah. He's not, he's not a grandstander. He's, um, he walks around. I, I mean, I, I came upon him multiple times in the course of the night. Um, I happened to walk past him as he was saying to some other musician, like, Hey, I just wanted you to know, I really liked that thing that you did in the last tune. And he's just taking the time. He didn't ever do that on a large scale. He just took the time it seemed to me to single out a bunch of people as he was passing them in a hallway to say, Hey, I just want, hi, I'm Dave. I just wanted to say you did a great job on that tambourine part or whatever, which is a thing that I really admire. And by the end of the experience, I think that, I think that we, you know, everybody had a really great Dave Matthews experience, like a, like a, a one uh, Dave Matthews experience that kind of makes you feel like, well, I hope he, I hope he felt the same way. I hope he feels like a member of the Seattle music community. I hope we can do this again sometime. Yeah. And for me personally, that kind of show that, that in the weeks leading up to it, I dreaded and I right. was walking around the whole time kind of teaching myself how to play the harmonica and, yeah, and heart was of, heart nervous of gold or something, right? That was yeah. And now, now, now I've got this like riff in my head that yeah. I'm just, and this is even the wrong key. I didn't play that very well, but really enjoyed learning to play the harmonica. Really didn't want to fuck up because I hate fucking up. But then the whole night was just this incredible gift where I didn't want it to end. I was grateful to be a musician. I was grateful <laughs> to be a member of this community and, and treated with treated so well by my, by my friends. Um, and by the town. So, you know, at the, at the end of the night, I was like, well, now why, why don't we do this every night? And the problem is of course, it's a huge operation to do and not, you wouldn't sell that club out every night if you right. did every night. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely a tent pole event for 
for this uh, for this autumn for me. And in particular, you know, we uh, we're not doing the last waltz thing that we do every year. Uh, we're doing it now every other year, and so this was a year without a last waltz. It's been a year without a trip to New York for me, or at least I haven't gone I haven't gone to New York this fall, which may, always makes me a little melancholy because every time I every time a season goes by and I don't go to New York, I feel a little bit like, well, it's over. You know, my whole career and that whole era of my life when it mattered whether or not I was in New York or not. Uh, that's all gone. Nobody cares now. And this, this was like a, it was, it was validating. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Cause you were part of something cool and it mattered. It did. It did matter. Well, I, I thought it was awesome. I wish I'd been there. Uh, yeah, I wish you'd been there too. You would have been, um, you would have been right in the wheelhouse of the audience. The audience was, I went down into the audience at one point and realized that everybody in the audience is also between the ages of 35 and (laughs) 55. I remember when I was a kid and you know, like the, the bigger, older acts would, I mean, I wasn't really a kid. I was an adult, but I feel like from where I am now, I was still a kid. You know what I mean? But you know, like the big, a big, big act would, cause the stones would come and it'd be like, tickets are $230, like $230. Like I was used to paying, I mean, I was used to paying very little for tickets. And I mean, one of the things that I did in college, I went to UCF and, uh, and we had an, uh, something called the UCF arena, which was one of maybe two venues that were, it wasn't a big venue, but it was, it was much bigger than just a club, you know? And uh, a lot of acts would come through there. And so I got to see so many, so many acts from, because I got a job there uh, as an usher. And so the only reason I went to work there was so I could get to see the concerts for free. And I had to work stupid graduations and things like that, that I, you know, that I didn't care. Like basically you get to be the bad guy where every single parent just wants to get a picture of their kid walking across. And my job was to make them not stand up and walk to the, you know, the front of the aisle and take a picture like that sucked. But the rest of the time when I was an usher at a music event, I mean, I got to, you know, and you get to like go backstage and hang out and, you know, like I got to like meet Ted Nugent and Vince Gill and extreme and, you know, all these crazy different acts that came through And I got to, I learned, it was like a master's class in, in music appreciation for me because I kind of went into it fairly closed minded, you know, like I liked classic rock and I liked grunge, which was new at the time. And that was pretty much it. And I, my mind was totally open to all this music that I was there. And I'm like, I remember Vince Gill in particular as just, he put on one of the best shows that I've ever seen just the dedication to being a musician, to putting on a great show, to, to caring so much. And everybody that was on that stage was a professional, you know? And it was just, I didn't know a single song. I didn't even like beforehand that genre of music. 
but it was just, it was a great experience. And I can only imagine, you know, being up there and, and being part of creating an experience like that must be like nothing else. Yeah. you really do feel your, you feel the specialness of your job. Um, because You know, I'm not super good at a lot of the things that are needed in a, in a, uh, event like that. Like the, the guy that was playing the piano, the guitar, the, all the accessory musicians in the backing band is a guy named Paul Haraga, who was the singer of down pilot. And Paul learned 20 plus songs on piano, guitar, harmonica, percussion, bass, um, and backing vocals. And he knew all, all of it impeccably, Mm -hmm. uh, impeccably so that you didn't ever feel like you, uh, you, you didn't have any fear that they were going to fuck up. You know, a lot of the, a lot of, a lot of time with a, with a backing band, you're, you're like, Oh, please don't, you know, don't, don't mess this up. Right. Yeah. Um, but you never felt that way. And I'm not that I couldn't have done the job. Paul Haraga did. I could not have learned 20 songs and been a utility player like that. I'm just not, that good of a musician. And there were a lot of people on stage that had that ability. And really I can't even do a particularly creditable Neil Young impression. I, I just came out and sang a Neil Young song in my voice Mm -hmm. and then played the harmonica. Okay. But the power of being a musician is such that I'm, I still am capable of moving people who are sitting in an audience, come out and do one song by Neil Young, a song that already kind of stacks the deck because it's a song people know. But then there's a quality in my voice that's, you know, not for everybody, but that I'm, I'm able to sing heart of gold in my own voice and make it sort of, um, about me in a way or about us turn it into a song where I'm singing those lyrics, but it's my feelings behind Mm -hmm. them. Right. And that's a very fortunate position to be in, but I also recognize it is actually a thing. It's not, um, it's not a thing everybody can do. It is, it's a, it's a skill a talent, I guess, a thing yeah, I've for practiced sure and a thing that, I, you know, and a thing that I have. And there are a lot of people on that stage that have that too, right? Like, uh, Dave Bazan will never try and sound like Neil Young. He's always going to be Dave Bazan. Shelby Earl is always going to sound like Shelby, even when she does an incredible, uh, take on a, on a tune. But then there are going to be other people that do really good Neil Young impressions. Mm-hmm. 
But from the standpoint of the audience, it's a great night of entertainment. You get something of it, no matter who you are, no matter what you're looking for at a thing like that, there's going to be a moment where you feel like, well, that was for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's why music plays such a central role in the way we organize our identities and the way we organize our relationships with one another. We don't, we don't, maybe have communities organized around music the way they used to be. Even in my time, it felt like a music, it felt like music was one of the ways that we created a community. Yeah. We don't organize our cities around it. You know, we don't say anymore, like Seattle doesn't have a jazz quarter and a, and a rock quarter and a hip hop quarter. Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't live around one another dictated by music. And I'm not sure whether we have community the way we did, uh, because so much of what, so much of what acts as community for us now happens virtually and internationally. You, you would say right now, probably that your friends, and I'm talking to, about you, Dan, mm -hmm. your friends were spread all over the country and all over the world. Right. 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 And, um, 25 years ago, you wouldn't have said that. No. And it's not just because 25 years ago, you weren't, uh, the big cheese that you are today. <laughs> I said 25 years ago, you know, if you had a friend that lived in Paris, you would, what would, what would happen? You'd write them a letter every year. Yeah, pen pal. Yeah. I mean, but you wouldn't think of them as like your, your friend group. No. I mean, I remember uh, 15 plus ish years ago. Um, I, I, had, uh, was hanging out with somebody that I knew this is probably North Carolina. And he was saying that, that most of his friends, if not all of them, uh, and certainly all of his best friends, he'd, he'd never met in person. And they were internet friends, people that he knew from message boards and other places like that. And I, I remember thinking to myself how, like how weird that was at the time. And I think a lot of people would probably not think it was so weird today, but back then it was strikingly odd and it seemed a little bit sad because I was like, well, what about all the people right here? You know, what about all the people around us right now? And well, yeah, I don't, you know, my friends are on the internet, but I think it's become more normal now, hasn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure it has. Um, even me. I mean, when I think of my friends, I think of them all over. Mm -hmm. And then I'm reminded that I also have a, I also know a lot of people in Seattle and I'm thought of as a, as a very, 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 um, integrated member of this community. But it used to be that my friends were the people I saw every day. And that a lot of that was dictated by our shared interest in, in making music and in, in consuming music. So music was central to my community and my identity. And I still call myself a musician and, I'm, and I, and, and I think people think of me as a musician, even mm -hmm. though that isn't my primary activity now, because it's so crucial to my identity formation. 
and to just seeing seeing me as I but but really music played a very considering I'm 51 my music uh, career you couldn't really say started before about 1995 and my last album came out in 2006 so from the standpoint of my the years that I was actually actively making music it was 10 years now from 2006 to the present 13 subsequent years I've continued to play music that whole time it, with a decreasing frequency, I haven't put out new music in so long, continue to be a live performer, but, but really the core years of me being a, a musician, but, but of course that doesn't affect the fact that I'm a musician. It's, 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 it's who I am. It's what I am. And, and, and 1995, I was already like 26 years old. So, and, and there, there was a girl at the, at the, uh, at the show that I went to high school with that I saw in the audience. And she said to me at one point in our conversation, she was like, were you a musician in high school? I don't remember that. <laughs> and I, I was like, no, I was not. I mean, I, I strummed a guitar I had a band called the truly awful band, but it was mostly an excuse to draw album covers. We, we only played two things that could be called shows. One of them was our guitar players, 10 year old sister had a birthday party and we played at her birthday party for like six, 10 year old girls. And we played like three Judas priest songs. And there was, I didn't have an amp to sing through, so I just sang over the top of us. <laughs> and then our only real show was a graduation party at the Seattle Tennis Club where we played on a balcony. I'm sorry, at the Anchorage Tennis Club. The Anchorage, yeah, the Alaska Tennis Club. I, we never called it that. We just called it the Tennis Club. But it was, the, it was in Anchorage. And there was like a balcony that overlooked a bunch of tennis courts and we set up there and played. And again, I don't think we had a PA. Maybe I was singing through a guitar amp. Whatever it was, there's no document of it and it was unlistenable. So the Truly Awful Band was not a viable, uh, it was not part of my identity in school. People didn't think like, oh, John, the musician. And I wasn't thought of as a musician until, yeah, until I was I was 26 and I think even then when I would run into people and say like my band, uh, the, a lot of time the reaction was you're what you have a band. I didn't mm -hmm. know you were a musician. Mm -hmm. I didn't know you played music. So honestly, like a lot of the people on this, that I shared a stage with Ian Moore, probably most of those people, um, they were all playing music from the time they were 13 years old. You know, right. they weren't, um, they weren't people that came to it late. They were like most, most of my peers are people that knew, they always knew they wanted to be a musician. It's a weird it's a weird thing when you look back at your life that way. 
you know, as far as somebody who, because it seems to me like, like when I think of a musician, celebrity, whatever, I don't know. It, it seems like you kind of get this image that they are what they are all the time. Like they've always been that, like, Oh, that guy that plays guitar, like he's always played guitar and that, you know, the right. girl that sings, she's always been a singer, you know, or, or an actor or whatever. Right. And, you know, you find out that like they weren't or that they used to do it and now they do something different, you know, like that's weird. Like can, how, how can you, because I think the, I think the understanding is that, or the, the, almost the expectation is just that somehow people are like a, a, like a certain thing. And for some reason we kind of want to put them into a box. We want to think of them as being the way that they are and had, they've always been that way. You know, like I'm the podcast guy. And before I was the podcast guy, I was the guy that wrote tutorials on how to install, you know, MySQL on a Mac OS. Like, that's how I, I think of you. That's how you think of me. And so, like, but you know, like, I did that for a long time, and that that's not that's not me. That's not what I was. It was the thing I did. But I I think for some reason we have these ideas that like people are. Like they are a thing. They are the thing. And for some reason it's, and I, a friend of mine used to say, you know, people are going to put you into a box. So instead, you know, at least you get to pick the box that they put you in. And I said, well, how did, how do you decide that? And they said, well, you just start doing the thing. And then as people learn about you, then you, you are that person. You are that guy. You are that thing. So. And that's uh, we talk, we've talked recently quite a bit about um, about not having a friend group, about being a kind of uh, person that is, you know, that's somewhat uh, an independent, right? And and a component of that is the sort of jack of all trades uh, style of being an independent, or the um, the independent that doesn't, that never, that never picked a single career. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've talked before, I think, until, until I was in my late twenties, I assumed that my career would be as a writer, as a, as a, a writer and not especially as a novelist, but as a essayist. And, and I don't think even as a reporter, uh, like a journalist, but as someone who wrote, I think serious essays, um, maybe long, you know, long form critical essays is what I imagined was going to be what, what I did in life. Um, and everything I was doing was kind of leading up to, leading up to that. And the thing I recognized that I didn't have was an academic credential. I, I was, I was putting together a bunch of life credential and I was developing a, a point of view 
and and kind of sh- sharpening my point of view and sharpening my ability to tell stories and to talk to people. But I knew that without an academic credential, I was going to be at a disadvantage because I saw the way the world looked at essayists and public thinkers. And I understood that without, with an academic credential, you can be a public thinker that is 100% full of shit and people will <laughs> take you seriously because your calling card is your degree from Cambridge. And if you have a, if you were a Rhodes Scholar and if you, and honestly, if you have degrees that are unrelated to what you're talking about, if you're an MBA, um, you can or if you if you are a doctor of art history, you can sort of talk about um, ancient aliens, or you can talk about, uh, you know, like American folk art, or you can talk about um, about contemporary politics, and people will say, "Well, they have a doctorate in art history, so they know what they're talking about." You know, you like you need that that, uh, authentication and you can't get it another way. If you're, if you're pursuing that, that kind of punditry. Mm-hmm. We would like to say thank you so much to Squarespace for making this episode of Roadwork possible. Squarespace lets you do so much. The essence of what they do is they let you turn your cool idea into a website. They let you showcase your work. You can blog, you can sell products or services. There's so much you can do with it. And the templates that allow you to control the design were created by world-class designers, but you don't have to be a designer to make the site look good or tweak it or change it or style it the way that you want to style it. It's up to you, but you're not alone. You have the support of Squarespace. You have the technology of Squarespace. Everything is optimized out of the box. It's going to look great on mobile. They've got built-in analytics, built-in SEO, I mean, everything is there and you never have to worry about patching something or fixing something. They're on that. They take care of that for you. And you can even get your domain name from Squarespace. They support over 200 domain name extensions. It really is like a one-stop shop. And so if you're ready to start something new, a new business, you're getting married and you need a web page for it, you're a photographer and you want a gallery, you're a musician and want to post your music, whatever it is, you can do it with Squarespace. So go to squarespace.com slash roadwork. Just visiting that supports the show. So even if you're not sure that you're ready to sign up, go there. That lets them know that you're listening. It lets them know that you're interested. And when you are ready to launch, use the offer code roadwork and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. So that's squarespace.com slash roadwork. Promo code roadwork for 10% off. We sure do appreciate their support. And thanks very much for making this show possible, Squarespace. Life experience is not, uh, the, the, that world doesn't give a shit what you've lived through. I mm-hmm. mean, they do as long as you have the academic credential, unless you are a war reporter or something like that, where you can use it, where you can say, I dropped out of high school because I went to, you know, to report on the killing fields and then ever since then i've you know and i ended up writing for the new york times as a as a war reporter because i have the cuz i'm one in a in 100 million people that 
has this tremendous gift that can't be put into a box. And you can use that as an artist for sure. But if you're writing for the Atlantic or if you're going to appear as a commentator on PBS News, you can't just show up there and say, I read a lot. I've read a lot of books <laughs> right. and, you know, and I have a very, very acute sense of things like, no. And so my desire to be that person, to be someone, to be an essayist, I always knew I needed that endorsement. And I came to that, I came to that turning point in my life 20 years ago. In 1999, I was going to the University of Washington. I was teaching a class um, called the Introduction to the Comparative History of Ideas at UW. And it was a thing where I was, what it was, was there was a, it was a survey class, you know, it was a, it was a class taught in a big room. There were 400 students or whatever, all listening to a lecture. And then those classes that that group broke down into 30 person groups that then took uh that attended class on Tuesdays and Thursdays and the the big lecture hall class was on Mondays and then there were Tuesday Thursday classes that were um basically this same class it's just you were in groups of 30 and those 30-person classes were headed by it, it, um, teams of two uh, upperclassmen in the Comparative History of Ideas program. And it was, a, it was a radical idea because we weren't graduate students. We were undergraduates but seniors and were given this opportunity to be the teacher in a class and the university of Washington wasn't comfortable with it, but the, it was very much like the chid department's little, little baby. And the students would teach as a team. And as we were in the summer before we were, you know, this group of students was upperclassmen. were getting together to put out our lesson plans and coordinate with the professor and decide how, cause we were the, pi the pioneers of this program. And I said, look, I know that this is antithetical to our concept, but I do not want to do this with another student. I would like to have my own class. I don't want to do this as a partnership with someone. I would like to be a teacher of my own group of students. And for whatever reason, they let me do it. And so during this year, I was teaching a college class as a undergraduate and it was, you know, the lesson plan was made by the CHID department mm -hmm. and I was monitored, but within the class itself, I was teaching the, and we, and we were working from this, this, um, this lecture that happened on Monday. That was what we were then coming together to explore. But I loved it, I, and I knew I would, and I'd been waiting for it. I'd waited for the opportunity, and now I had it. And for a, for a quarter, I had this class with my own students and my own – That's pretty cool. It was wonderful. 
and I knew it was what I wanted to do. And I hated the politics at the University of Washington. I didn't like – I loved my little core of fellow students and the teachers and the professors. I just knew that I wouldn't be a very good doctoral student. Mm -hmm. I could see the pressure they were under. I didn't like them in particular. The people that succeeded as doctoral candidates generally – had they, the people that made it through all those filters were not the people I liked the most. And I worried about that. And I had a band at the same time, the Western State Hurricanes. And it's funny when you get those moments in life, I look back at this as a pivotal moment. The, de the department head, my friend Jim Klaus, was taking this group of us to South Africa. We were going to go to Cape Town and we were going to write, write about the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And he asked me to write, he asked me to write a book about us going to South Africa to work with the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. So, so what he was saying was, because I was a little older than the other students, what he was saying was, I want you to watch us as we do this work and report not only on the work, but on us doing it, which was a real, he, he trusted me and it was also an endorsement of me. And it was also, he was, he was charging me with a, with a, a an authority that was kind of like, you can make your bones here, right? Like write this book. It won't be, it will, it will be what you're meant to do. Like you're mm -hmm. expose us even. Right. If we're frauds. And so, and we had a whole, during this whole quarter that I was teaching this class, I was also attending this seminar of the, of the small group of us that were going to go to Cape Town. And we were talking about what our plan was. And we were talking about, you know, we were studying what was happening in South Africa and trying to figure out like what what use can we be? I mean, it's not like we were going to go help. We were going to go watch and we were going to try and compile our observations because this, this process was informed by all of the stuff that, that we believed was what mattered at the time, you know, the history of thought and this was where it was kind of the, where the rubber met the road in, in this moment, the end of apartheid and the, and the creation of a new government. And I had this additional layer of like, okay, well, like Western college students who believe that, that, uh, the history of thought is, should be involved in the process of the end of apartheid and its creation of a new system of government. Uh, you know, like the end of colonialism in a way. And I, I you know, I never felt more engaged hmm. in this dream that I had. And this was an opportunity to establish those credentials within an academic world so that if that book was published, that would be the path to an, a, to an advanced degree, to an academic endorsement, you know, that book could have become a graduate 
direction for me. The process of that interrogation of an interrogation. Yeah. And at that moment, the Western State Hurricanes got invited to South by Southwest, which from our standpoint in, in the music scene was a similar kind of uh, a similar level of event in that I'd been playing music in Seattle for, um, you know, pretty seriously for five years. Yeah. And the only, the, the highest goal you could imagine was to play Bumbershoot, you know, our local music festival. And if you had done that, you would have achieved glory or maybe to have an album that was, that was at the top of the local charts. And the Hurricanes were this band, were my first band that were really popular. And we were in the newspaper and Sub Pop offered us a recording contract. And then we got invited to South by Southwest in Austin. Mm -hmm. It meant that people in America had heard of us. It right. meant that. Because <laughs> Austin is America. It is. <laughs> And, and, and South by Southwest was where all the labels went. It oh, was yeah. where all the people were. And to get invited there meant that people, we didn't have an album yet. It meant that we were going to go down there and be discovered and, and, the, and get signed and go, you know, to the show. Yeah. And I went to the band and I said, look, I have this opportunity to go to South Africa and to work on this project. And it will mean that we can't go to South by Southwest this year. Mm. But if I come back, you know, I'll come back from South Africa in June and we can pick up the band right where we left off. And I don't think if we skip this first South, if we skip this first South by Southwest, I don't think it'll, I don't think it'll cause a problem for us. I think I'll be gone for six months, come back. It'll be like nothing happened. They didn't go for this, did they? The, the three members of the band really circled the wagons and agreed that if I left for six months, we would completely lose momentum. Mm -hmm. The band would, by the time I got back, the band would be over. They would all go to, go do different things, and um, and so to go to South Africa would be to break up the band. And this was the like I say the first band I'd ever been in that was popular. It was kind of my moment on the Seattle music scene. Like I was a, this was it, this was my shot at it. And I went to Jim Klaus and I said, what do I do? If I don't go to South Africa with you, I feel like I'm going to miss a huge opportunity. But if I don't go to South by Southwest with my band, you know, this may be my one chance. And he said, you know, I can't advise you, but I will say that if you go to South by Southwest, I will always be here for you you can always come back to the university. Right. And we can come up with something for you to do. This isn't your last chance. 
And so I weighed the two options based on like, well, one group is telling me if I don't do it, that they're, that they quit. And Jim Klaus says he'll always be there for me. And so I chose to go to Austin. I didn't go to South Africa. I went to Austin with the Western State Hurricanes, and it turned out that we didn't, that, that South by Southwest wasn't what we imagined it was. We didn't go down there, and they didn't greet us at the, at the town gates with a banner <laughs> that said, welcome to the music industry. We went, we played a show, we played several shows, we had some barbecue, we met a bunch of people, and then we drove, and then we did a tour with Death Cab for Cutie on the way home where we were both driving minivans, and the tour wasn't very successful because nobody had ever heard of any of our bands, and when we got back to Seattle, the bass player and the drummer uh, of the Western State Hurricane said, yeah, that wasn't really that fun, we quit. <laughs> and they quit the band. Oh my God. We never recorded, oh, you know, we God. never finished recording the album. They quit the band. And meanwhile, Jim and my fellow uh, cadre were in South Africa uh, during that period. And I was there in the town and had no band and had no academic family. And it was then that I decided to walk across Europe and did it only because I could not think of anything more extreme to do, you know, that's, and, and it also felt like something that was in the family of what going to South Africa would have been, except with no endorsement, no plot, no, um, it was just an exercise in putting myself to a test and also like punishing myself for having made what I thought then was the wrong decision. Yeah. And coming back from that, you know, I ended up falling into a music career again by accident and happenstance rather than by active pursuit, rather than falling into an academic career, which is kind of what I still imagined would happen. And I look back at that and wonder. I really do. I mean, this Western State Hurricanes record is going to come out this year and I'm going to relive that. I'm going to relive that music, that moment in my music life and that moment in the, in the formation of my identity. I'm going to relive it as though it was the Western State Hurricanes that were the missed opportunity. But what's not in that story, what's not in that album is that there was another missed opportunity there, maybe the greater one that I can't relive because Jim Klaus died just a few years later. And although he said that he would always be there for me mm. and he, and he meant it and he meant that I would always have a home right. there and a home with him, he got cancer very suddenly and died um, while I was on tour. <laughs> and, and although when he died, there was still a chit department that still knew me and, and, and John Taves took over. There wasn't that, you know, like Klaus and I had a, had the 
he was a, a true mentor in this, in the beginning of a partnership, it felt like. Yeah. That never came to fruition. So, you know, this, in a couple of months, I'm going to play, I'm going to play a couple of Western state hurricane shows and, and, and what I can't do is play that old introduction to the comparative history of ideas album. Mm. 